Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, it's been a while since we've had a chance to do the 15 and 60, and hopefully we can get through all the teams, but that may not be possible because I know both of us did a ton of research for this episode, but let's get right to it. Without further ado, we're going to go in order of the Western Conference standings. And who is first in the West, Danny? Well, Nate, I'll give you a choice. There's a tie between Denver and Memphis, but I guess Denver's on top on my sheet, so I guess we'll go with them. Let's do it. And what are the fundamentals for the first place Denver Nuggets? Denver, 26 and 13 on the season, 10 and 3 since the last 15 and 60. They are sixth in net rating at a plus 3.6 points per possessions. That's the cleaning the glass version of the stat, which filters out garbage time. They are first in offense, 24th in defense. We've talked about that in a few recent episodes. And generally speaking, the 538 models are optimistic on Denver. They're projected to finish second in the West in both the Raptor and ELO versions of it. 54 wins on Raptor, 52 wins on ELO, and... It looks abundantly likely like the Denver Nuggets are going to make the playoffs. In our last episode that we did, we were recording as this game was going on. The Nuggets, I don't know if there's even a graphic enough verb to describe what they did to the LA Clippers in the first 15 minutes of the game, after which they led 50 to 23. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard didn't even play in the second half. That's how bad this was. It was basically a 30-point blowout the entire way after that. And it really occurred without Nikola Jokic having to do hardly any scoring at all. He certainly contributed to the playmaking. It wasn't so awful. The Nuggets were only up 20 to 13, eight minutes into the game. And then they just went on a ridiculous heater against the the Clippers. I mean, the biggest thing that stuck out to me was just that the Clippers couldn't score. And I didn't think that their, the Nuggets defense was like so unbelievable against the Clippers. It wasn't like you felt like the Clippers like couldn't get a shot off or anything like that. They were largely kept to the outside and it was evident again the Clippers have gotten a little bit better here but how little pressure they're able to put on the rim other than through like a Zubats offensive rebound or maybe pick and roll every once in a while Kawhi Leonard did not have it in this one just was not able to get much separation Aaron Gordon when he tried to attack him Gordon did well to stay in front of him and and that's a matchup that Kawhi Leonard back in the when he the one year he was in the Eastern Conference really hurt when he was playing for the Raptors and Gordon was on the Magic but those two guys as a mature Gordon has gotten better Kawhi is not the same player as he was in 2019 at least now right now and so Gordon I thought was able to contest him pretty well just didn't look like Kawhi was getting the lift very flat shots 
for him wasn't really able to get much penetration. Well, and, and, and yeah. on that note, I thought it was telling this could also just be the medical staff's protocol that the Clippers had a back to back. They were playing the day after this demolition at the hands of the Denver Nuggets. And even though Kawhi Leonard only played, eventually it turned into 18 minutes in this game. He still did not play the next day against the Minnesota Timberwolves in a game that the Clippers also lost. Yeah, they've lost five straight. We'll get to their fundamentals in a little bit. And Kawhi did say that he hopes to get to the point where he's playing back-to-backs. He is at least getting up to a full minutes load in the games that he is playing. Remember, Paul George coming into this game was also questionable with some hamstring tightness. He looked to aggravate it on a drive in a previous game against Miami, which they also lost. So, but the biggest thing, and the Clippers didn't shoot particularly well from three. You know, they they were able to get open threes. They were focusing on setting a lot of off-ball screens, wide pin downs to get three-point shooters open with Nikola Jokic's man, knowing that Jokic wasn't, they didn't want to step Jokic out on the floor off the ball. And then the pick and roll coverage, of course, had Jokic up to the level of the ball. And the Nuggets had enough behind the play that the Clippers weren't able to find the roll man very often. Uh, And then defensively for the Clippers, you just, you didn't feel... Kawhi you didn't feel PG at all Reggie Jackson yeah go ahead on that front I think it's really a question I talked about this a lot last year when when Clay Thompson came back from his injury with the Warriors Paul George at many points in his career has been a good point of attack defender he he does a lot of things well but he could navigate screens and everything like that it wouldn't surprise me as he ages if that part of Paul George's game gets a little bit worse and then the question becomes if Paul George isn't going to be the Clippers point of attack defender who's it going to be because it wasn't anybody that they played in the important part of this game no it, it wasn't and George I think was on minutes limit and they're planning that out as well so when the Nuggets really completely blew them out was when neither George nor Leonard were on the floor late first to early second and we didn't see very much during the competitive portion of the game of the Clips small ball group against Nikola Jokic and Jokic again you know he only had a couple of buckets uh, during this first section as everyone else was going crazy and he was setting them up but you know there was maybe like a one and a half minute stretch before the game got completely out of hand where Covington was the center Nick Batum is still out with this ankle issue as well I thought that obviously hurt the Clippers but you know I don't see him guarding Nikola Jokic either I mean when Jokic in any kind of a scramble situation any kind of transition trying to post up against these little guys like he just makes them look tiny he's got like a 50 pound weight advantage he's got great hands huge wingspan you can just kind of lob it up around the rim and he's either going to get fouled or just grab it and, and lay it in with that incredible touch uh and I mean, it still didn't make you feel any better about this matchup for the clippers going forward and again we didn't see Nikola jokic having to guard uh, these guys in the premier there's a couple like a covington pick and pop that you're able to get back to but i don't think that given how absolutely ridiculous the denver nuggets offense has been this year with Nikola jokic on the floor and that's even without the likes of porter and murray operating at, at full speed for a lot of the year it's hard for me to imagine even if they just let robert covington shoot an open three every single time that they're going to outscore this team going to that small ball group and you know that's the type of cheat code that Nikola Jokic has become now as an offensive player that you just you can't guard him with one of these small like if you don't have one of these guys who and there's maybe I don't know 10 of these guys in the league maybe fewer who at least can think about guarding Nikola Jokic one-on-one like I don't know what you're supposed to do <laughs> well and because if you if you double he'll pass or he'll just create he'll create a different kind of advantage yeah. uh, one stat that's largely unrelated to this game eh, a little bit 
that struck me. I was coming through everything that that Seth is doing, and I don't have any commentary on this, but Denver is currently leading the league with the highest field goal percentage on contested threes, 37.5% on shots that are classified as contested. I just thought that was interesting. Sorry, who is, oh, that's Denver? The Nuggets, yeah. Not the uh, Clippers. Yeah. Well, well, and they're, the Nuggets three-point shooting, I mean, they're not a high-volume team, and part of this is Jokic setting guys up, but also just credit some of the, their support players for making shots, even if they are low-volume. Uh, like These guys are shooting like 40, over 40% from three. I mean, that's that's another one of these things where it's just like, what are you supposed to do if they're going to knock down every shot? That was the bigger problem for them in previous years with Murray out. Murray had a run of 13 straight points in the middle of the first. He was abusing Reggie Jackson because they had Zubats on the floor. So basically anytime Murray came off a screen on or off the ball, Jackson couldn't get through it. And it was it. Murray was able to get wide open looks. That followed Aaron Gordon starting off with the, I think he had eight of their first 10, including a, a big dunk around the room. He even had like a nice fadeaway jumper in the post uh, as well. Gordon has just been a, another one of these absolutely hyper-efficient Denver Nuggets. They've done a good job of pairing him with Jokic. And then it was this reworked bench group no PG, no Kawhi, but also no Jokic. And that group, KCP, usually goes out now with this reworked bench group for Bruce Brown pretty early on. And then they didn't even have Murray out there with this group. I guess they probably will later on. But So they had Bones at the one, Bruce Brown, KCP, Chanchar, and then Zeke Naji. And Naji, I thought, it had a couple of nice room protection plays. Uh, and KCP hit three threes in a row to really get it completely out of hand uh, right at the start of the second uh, and kind of transition, semi-transition situation. But you just, I mean, the Clippers, you didn't feel them. They just didn't have anyone, it seemed like, who's going to make plays defensively that was going to make things difficult. Lou calls timeout to make it 50-23 to 23 when Chanchar comes down basically in like a one-on-three and no one picks him up and he sails in for an NBA.com top 10 leading dunk. So uh, a couple other small notes uh, on this one, and we'll get to the Clippers stats in a second. Norman Powell uh, has been in some six-man conversations. I noted this in that game last year against the Wolves. I kind of chalked it up to, uh, well, you know, he's just coming back from the foot issue. He doesn't have good communication. He is not a good switch defender. He's not amazing in isolation. And then, granted, he's 6'4", but he has not been good on, like, larger players in the post. He got beasted by the likes of Najee, Aaron Gordon. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. Let's get to the fundamentals of the LA Clippers, who have, as we mentioned, lost six or sorry five straight yeah they've lost five straight and that they've fallen to 21 and 20 six and seven overall since the last 1560 because they had that better run right before it still 24th in net rating negative 1.8 and that's because they're 28th in defense a much stronger sixth or sorry 28th in offense a much stronger sixth in defense i got ahead of myself both 538 models project them to finish eighth in the west raptor with 41 wins elo with 40 and thus both give them about a 50 percent chance of making the playoffs because they could either fall to a lower seed or they could fail to make it out of the play-in those are the two ways that could happen we're ready to move on to the number well, two and quickly we are recording this just after halftime of their game they now trail by 12 against the hawks paul george did not play in that game right so yeah so they could be 500 by the time many of you are listening to this fair podcast man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 
2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. Things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing, like their premium Slub Crew tee, the No BS High Rise Pant, the Slim Roughneck Pant featured in Giant Magazine, Issue 2. Every American Giant piece is made in America and designed to last no exceptions, and it provides year-round comfort. So find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use that finger code CAPSPACE at checkout. Please remember, we talk about CAPSPACE all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us we can move on to the tied for number one seed in the western conference and that is the memphis grizzlies memphis 
26 and 13 on the year, nine and four since the last 15 and 60. And they have a better net rating, cleaning the glass, than the Denver does. Plus 6.1, top 10 in both offense and defense, ninth in offense, and numero uno in defense. We're about to talk about that. Both models project them to finish with 55 wins, which is good enough for first in the West, and they're going to make the playoffs. And I wanted to start this with something that I just, it just passed by me. We had over the weekend the functional cutdown date because players have to clear waivers by January 10th in order to to not have their contracts fully guaranteed. So we got, we'll talk about those as they come in. And I think it's interesting that the first one of those that we're going to talk about is Danny Green. Danny Green, because of to, to make the salary match against some of the trades work, he originally had a non-guaranteed, or maybe it was lightly guaranteed, $10 million with the Sixers, ends up in the D'Anthony Melton trade, going to Memphis, getting $7 mil of that $10 mil guaranteed, has not played yet, recovering from a torn ACL. And instead of waiving Danny Green and saving $3 million or trading him and another team waving him like the Celtics did with Vonley, the Grizzlies fully guaranteed him. And we have heard nothing on Danny Green's availability. They could theoretically still use this as matching salary and trade or anything else. But this is a data point. I don't know how important a data point it is. Yeah, I was very unsurprised that they kept him. Number one, he has been talking about potentially coming back. He's been at a, he made a visit like to the ESPN studios, I think last month. And was oh, when Windhorst talked about how they might trade him in front of him. Yes, yes. Uh, but I mean, that's why you retain him at, at this point. I mean, they're not close to the tax at all. Paying an extra three million dollars, like he, they don't have really any other matching salary that they would want to move. Even Brandon Clark, he signed an extension, so he's got the poison pill issue. They don't have any mid-level contracts. If they did want to make a move, they could also even just—they'll be over the cap next year. They could also just re-sign him potentially. I think he would be a nice fit there. Sure, sign just to, from a personality standpoint, a leadership standpoint. They don't necessarily have that adult in the room that i think they could use the kind of guy who can have a, well i think they have a, a good culture there they are a little young and brash and, and maybe there's someone who can have some of the harder conversations that might need to be had with some of these young guys uh, at some point in the future and he also has a skill set that uh, would fit in pretty well with them if he can get healthy i mean it is going to be tough for him to come back i mean it's not only a torn acl but it's the lcl as well and that happened in may so it would be and remember joe ingles coming back this year was 11 months that's the fastest anyone's come back since 2014 so it would be even if he comes back 10 months earlier you know you're looking at mid-march can he get into their rotation really help them i don't know but it, but he's been around the team you know he's not doing an andre guadala necessarily but i think the biggest reason to hold on to him is just to have that salary in trade and an extra three million dollars uh, wasn't gonna save them a lot before we get to the main portion of this would you care to guess who has the best offensive rating on the Memphis Grizzlies by 2.2 points per 100 possessions? I have not looked at this at all. Yeah, well, that that is the spirit of it. I know. Um, randomly, my first thought was John Conchar. Is not John Conchar. Steven Adams? Steven Adams is correct. Mm -hmm. And, of course, buoyed by the fact that he plays a lot of minutes with John Morant. And the offense has been much better this year with Morant on the floor as well. And I think Morant is at his best playing with Adams. We, we talked some when we did the game around their game against the Magic of how Steven Adams continues to have this really nice offensive effect despite his uh, relative lack 
of scoring at the center position. And the Grizz, you mentioned their overall net rating, particularly when you look at their ratings with their best players on the floor, you know, high single digits, uh, low double digits. So uh, they're looking very much like a team on the path for the number one seed, certainly a top three. And I mean, that defense is now first in the NBA. Big part of why that has occurred. They've been a good defense without this guy, but the Grizz have a 100.9 defensive rating with Jaron Jackson on the floor. So only played a little over 500 minutes, so it's not a huge sample by any means. So let's dig into the stats first here, Danny, of what it is just statistically that's causing opponents to score so incredibly poorly when Jaron Jackson is out there. There are a couple different places that you can look first, but one of the ways that I like to look at a rib protector, this originally started with Gobert, is does the proportion of shots around the basket change? Sometimes that could be deterring restricted area into floater range. It could be a number, it could be a number of different elements. And that part of it isn't really there. I've also grown to appreciate over the years that sometimes the rim and floater proportions can shift also based on the strength of your perimeter defense. And for Memphis, that, you know, that shifts based on the lineup that's on the floor. Instead of it being where the shots are coming from, it's whether or not the shots are successful. Yeah, and that actually, we'll get to these stats in a second here, right? So the the shot mix doesn't change too much. Percentage definitely does. Opponents, just this is not even necessarily plays that he's specifically contesting, but just the overall opponent field goal percentage at the rim is 12.5% worse when Jaron Jackson is on the floor. I mean, that's a, that is a crazy, crazy number. Opponents are shooting 49.8% in the restricted area when Jackson is on the floor. That number of the opponent shooting percentage just simply when he's on the floor not when he's contesting is five percent better than any big who's played more than 300 possessions this season so that that's a crazy number opponents also are shooting 10.1 percent worse on floaters when Jaron Jackson is in the game that one in particular I would chalk up a little bit more to luck uh and I think this is kind of interesting it it dovetails some with the film that I looked at because Jaron Jackson still he's not that kind of you know Brooke Lopez is sort of the opposite kind of room protectors like Brooke will surprise some guys on us but and Rudy Gobert is another one of these guys and and I think actually you know Jaron is a different type of room protector than these guys in part because he's playing differently right like he's playing more on the back line he's actually guarding the likes of say Apollo Bancaro for example and you know a good score at power four like he's going to be actually guarding that player but he still is not like you know just standing under the basket being huge big chest rim protection verticality that's not the type of shot blocks that he gets he surprises guys and he's also but he's so fast that he gets there and he's more just fooling guys into thinking they're open and then he gets there and the way he blocks these shots most of it happens with his left hand but he can get you with the right hand too if that's appropriate he gets a lot of these like as it's leaving the guy's hand just with like a quick swipe his timing is unbelievable and that's something i saw even going back to his film at michigan state now of course you're prone to pick up some fouls in that situation but he's gotten better at not fouling. i think maybe also he's getting a little bit more of a reputation for making these blocks oh and nate on that fouling note today as we're recording this on sunday was the first time this year that jaron jackson has fouled out and he fouled out with i believe was like 10 seconds left to go in the game and they won yeah yeah they they were uh pretty much in control played without john morant today uh but took care of utah nonetheless utah was on the second end of a back-to-back after an emotional loss 
Larry Markkinen's return to Chicago yesterday, Saturday. But in any event, when Jackson actually is there and contests, opponents are shooting 40% when he is in five feet of them and they shoot within five feet of the basket. That's just, that's an unheard of number. And then also really impressive, again, considering that he really plays more forward to me, certainly in the starting lineup, but he does that when he's playing with Xavier Tillman. If he's playing with Clark, you know, that's kind of, they'll mix and match there. Uh, but he's still contesting 35% of opponent shots around the basket that, that occur when he's on the floor. So that's really good. And particularly again, because he actually gets out on the floor, it does a good job closing out as well. And yeah, just his short area quickness, two or three steps, like the two steps he takes to get from one side of the lane to the other, absolutely elite. And he just it really surprises guys. And you almost, when you're watching, you don't almost, you don't see it the way you see it with some guys where it's like, oh no, he's going to jump into this guy. Like the guy's there. He has no chance. What's he doing? You kind of feel like these guys have him beaten or he'll just show up out of nowhere. And then you don't even really, like he's so quick with these swipes. He gets it before the ball has even really left the guy's hand. You're like, what, what just happened there? Like, did he, uh, I, I, oh, right. Jaron Jackson, like he just blocked it. And, you know, he's not just like skying way above the rim for uh, these crazy plays either. But when you just, so, so basically what Jaron Jackson is doing, he's not even necessarily deterring shots at the rim. He's just turning so many shots around the basket into misses. And part of why he's at this crazy 40% number, again, I, I noted that's just not a number that you see, right? And, and granted, this is a small sample. Like these numbers are going to go up a little bit, right? Like even Rudy Gobert's best years, you know, maybe Jazz opponents would shoot in the mid-50s around the rim when he was on the floor and the best guys we've seen maybe in like the very high 40s they can force misses not this 40 percent like we're talking about here like when they actually contest it but he's just blocking so many shots danny listen to this stat this is the stat i thought was the craziest when he has contested a shot at the rim opponents have made 56 field goals okay that's that's that 40 percent. he has blocked 69 shots on the year so if you go up when <laughs> Jaron Jackson is around, and now some of those blocks might be on the perimeter, but most of them are on the room. If you go up when Jaron Jackson is in the vicinity, you have a greater chance of actively getting your shot blocked than making the shot. And that's and remember, not to this mention, is around the basket. This isn't like yeah. 40, 20 feet from the hoop. Yeah. Like you're just like, and you have a greater chance of not even getting your shot off than making it. And then of course, you know, you're going to miss plenty too as well. So, and I mean, that's, a, that's a number that just, uh, I have never seen anything like that before. I, I imagine it'll normalize by the end of the year, but for example, Brooke Lopez, he's got 98 block shots on the year, but opponents have 158 makes. And Nick Claxton is pretty close. He's got 93 blocks and opponents have 118 makes. Um, now, Jackson also right now has the highest 2% or, or two-point block percentage ever. That's a little bit misleading because just the denominator is different. But it's it's not necessarily that there are more or fewer shots to block around the rim. It's just that the stat is kind of misleading. Seth has done good work on this of just so many two-point jumpers are now threes. So the denominator is lower even though – Guys were just taking some spot up. 19 yeah, the, footer. the shots, the shots around the basket haven't changed, but the denominator has. Yeah, so it's definitely easier than it's ever been to have a high two point block rate because a higher percentage of twos are shot around the basket now than they ever were. But if you go back and look at the last 
20 years or so the percentage of shots taken around the basket hasn't really changed that much like 0304 is the first year cleaning the glass has this data 31.5 percent of shots were around the rim and this year 33.5 percent just generally in the nba so it's it's you don't really in terms of raw shot blocking you don't really have fewer chances in terms of shots around the rim now of course the spacing is much more compacted back in those days and so if you look at actually just blocks per 75 possessions jackson would rank 55th all time there since the the institution of the block shot again that's only with 571 minutes so these numbers are all going to go down you know if i had to it's really it'd be impossible i think for him to allow you know let's say over the rest of the season less than say 47 or 48 percent on the shots he can test and for the Grizz to allow less than 55 percent shooting at the rim when he's on the floor but for right now this has been one of the greatest stretches that we've seen in terms of rim protection and uh it's been awesome to watch it really has been and Jaron potentially taking it up another level also fundamentally could shift the way we think about the Grizzlies playoff defense and play out their playoff defense had some really strong moments last year it had some less strong moments against the Minnesota Timberwolves in particular but Memphis is probably going to be doing it from a strong seed BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. And another team that hopes to join them with a strong seed are the New Orleans Pelicans. Yeah, the Pels, uh, we've talked about some of their injury issues, uh, but uh, they've managed to still be competitive. They lost last night to Dallas, 127 
117 on the road, but didn't play CJ. And of course, Ingram and Zion are still out, but they're still 24 and 16. They are seven and eight since we last checked in on them. Fourth in net rating, seventh on offense, still fifth on defense. They've been one of the luckier teams in terms of opponent shooting from the outside. They project for 48 and 49 wins. That would be the three seed per Raptor and Elo, respectively. 92% chance to playoffs per Raptor, 94% Elo. Let's talk about one Trey Murphy. Yeah. The Pelicans having so many players that have been in and out of the lineup made it a good time to look at Murphy, who has played in 37 games this year, started 27, and he was the 17th pick a year ago in the 21 draft and then came primarily came off the bench. So Murphy at a little bit over a thousand minutes so far in his sophomore season. And one of the most encouraging parts of it is that Trey Murphy's still drilling his threes, maybe not at the rate of the beginning of the season, still plenty good. 41% on 6.9 three-pointers per 36 minutes. That attempt rate is actually below what it was last year when he was playing a small, playing fewer minutes and kind of had more of a green light just because of the, when he was playing. But if you want to combine Trey Murphy's NBA career and make it a 2,000-minute sample, 40% from long range, taking 7.3 per 36 minutes. That is extremely encouraging. Yeah, but, and he takes hard ones too. Like he's oh, out yeah. there uh, on these shots. He's not necessarily shooting as much on the move, but he is shooting from deep. Like he kind of has this set shot. So that's a, something will be something for him to add. It's maybe a little bit more versatility, really sprinting off screens. Like he can move off of screens, but he's really got to have his feet set. And I don't know if his shot motion will be conducive to more movement shooting, but the way that they play and with as few shooters as they have for one of the few guys they have to be able to stand so far away from the basket like that does still make the rotations of the other team difficult with some of the other big scores that they have true and murphy get if he can add some of that versatility this is age 22 season it would it would, could bring in some other elements you know kind of some some weak side actions in particular though they can use them as a screener design if they want to and the big reason why Trey Murphy's efficiency has really jumped this year, he's gone from 56% true shooting to 65 in the early going, is not the three-pointers, because he was making them last year too, getting to the line a little bit more, but the primary difference is going from making 42% of his two-pointers to 59%. And Trey Murphy is doing a lot better in the restricted area so far, 58% to 75%. And the thing that cracked me up with it is one of the most basic things that he's doing a lot better is... Is 5% more of his total shots from the field are dunks. So he's now up to 13% of every shot Trey Murphy takes as a dunk. And so if you add in, add the dunks and just the dunks and threes together, 75% of every shot that Trey Murphy takes. And if you add in free throws where, you know, he's making 92%, getting there, if you want to use per game stats, about two times a game. If you want to use per 36, about two and a half, three. That's the foundation of an incredibly efficient, albeit not the highest usage player. He's at about 15% so far this year. And I, w- I was interested that Murphy, such a low percentage of his twos are assisted. And I was like, I never really, you really never see him do much with the ball in his hands. And I think the answer there is that when you shoot so few two pointers, Sometimes opportunities in transition and particularly offensive rebounds, those typically are not assisted because they kind of 
I mean, transition can be, but some aren't really that spot. And so because he doesn't do a ton of it, those make up a larger part of the sample in a weird way, kind of like the denominator thing we were talking about with Jaron Jackson. So even though Murphy doesn't do any on-ball stuff, I think he has like 20 pick-and-roll possessions so far this season, only about 55% of his twos are assisted. Yeah, and he's got a lot of bounce off of two feet. He'll come in mm-hmm. with some big two-handed cockback dunks, like to get up for some tip dunks uh, as well. Defensively, when I've watched the Pelicans, I thought he's been fine, but not a huge standout. Encouraging that Murphy's steal and block rates have both bumped up to 1.6%. You know, we sometimes talk about 2% as being a threshold on that. And Murphy's not a huge defensive rebounder. Not really expecting that, even though he is six foot nine. He's kind of more opportunistic. It also depends where he is on the floor. There is a significant difference right now of opinion between EPM and Raptor defensively. The models can sometimes be useful just because we watch these teams regularly, but you're only getting a portion of the sample. Around a negative one in defensive EPM and around a plus plus 0.7, plus one in defensive Raptor. But the real threshold that actually matters for a player like Trey Murphy is he's probably not good enough defensively to get those main assignments. And if, if he can reach that point, then we're talking about a fundamentally different player. But they have Herb Jones. They have lots of other players who can do it. Instead, it is will teammates not sorry, will teammates will opponents attack you regularly and will they be successful if they do preliminarily? I'm optimistic on that front, not only because Murphy is six foot nine and a less obvious target, but also because I think he does a reasonably credible job. And so if you can cross that threshold and do the other things Murphy does well, then as long as you have the players who can set up those shots and you have the players who can take those tough assignments, can build a rotation, can build some lineups that really work well. It's going to be fascinating to see because I I would largely agree with you on his defense, but Willie Green is going to have to make the decision, basically him or Herb Jones, because CJ, Brandon Ingram, Zion, and a big are going to play. And so are they going to go with Trey Murphy? Like he, to me, is not cut out to be the one-on-one get over a screen guy. Now, can he be part of a switching group if you're going to go with Larry Nance at center in some of their best lineups? Maybe. Maybe he could. Uh, but would they put, if they're not going to go that way, would they put Brandon Ingram? On the other team's best score, like that's not something he's ever really done either. So they are they kind of need someone to fill that role. But the other problem is that Herb has been able to shoot this year. You think last I checked, he was shooting twenty eight percent. So there is still a, an issue with Murphy, and you, I don't think he's ever going to be that guy who's really going to like slither over screens, and he's never going to be the strongest guy either to guard just in a, in a straight up isolation. And he does like an okay job of making plays, but nothing special the way Herb is. So. And obviously, you know, Dyson Daniels, another guy who can get into that mix uh, eventually, you know, to have the option of Herb, Dyson Daniels, and Murphy all on cheap contracts going forward is going to be a luxury for Green. But it'll be fascinating to see how it turns out there. And it, of, of course, now there's also the chance that the Pels just won't be healthy, <laughs> which, uh, you know, they haven't been. And that's why he's had so much playing time and he has closed a lot of games for them. One other note I want to make with Trey Murphy, and I've noticed this more when I've watched the Pelicans recently is there are some stretches, particularly when he's been shaky shooting in that game, where he hesitates too much. And low-usage players, of course, making the shots is paramount. Outside of that, making quick decisions to retain the advantage is essential, whether it's a shot, whether it's a pass, or dribbling in to try to create, to try to keep things going that way. And that hesitation allows the defense to recover. So 
I'm guessing that will be out of his system in the next six months to a year, maybe two years if it takes a little bit more time. But he needs to improve that unless the offensive role changes significantly. Next up, the Dallas Mavericks, 23-18. and 18. They had that rough game against the Celtics that we talked about Thursday. Bounced back uh, with a nice win yesterday over the Pels, although, again, the Pels were not particularly whole in that game. Lost today at OKC with no Luka, but had that nice winning streak. They are ninth in the NBA net rating overall, plus 2.3, up to fifth on offense, and they have now fallen to 20th on defense. I would expect both of those numbers to continue to separate from one another. They project for the four seed only. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think of the West four seed is only having 46 wins. 45 per ELO would also be the four seed. 89% chance to play for Raptor, 83 ELO. But again, I mean, there. if you look at the loss column now, you're going to hear a, a lot of very similar numbers in the loss column coming up here as the four through 11 seeds in the West are separated by a mere three losses at this point in time. Mavs waved Kemba Walker before the cutdown date. It was odd that he played those two minutes against Boston. Maybe that was a sop to him to just play against Boston. But I, I think the bigger reason they moved on from him was just that they were starting to see more from Jaden Hardy, who had a, a nice run a, a, against the Pels. Then he was two for eight today. But uh, Hardy had some pretty nice finishes in that Pels game going right. Willie Hernan Gomez is in some great rim protection but still for a, a small guard shoot, shot the way he did in the G League last year was had some very impressive finishes around Hernan Gomez getting to the basket looked pretty athletic you know his shot is going to be off and on I'm sure but he's got a pretty big strong body and so it'd be interesting to see whether he you know you see these very broad outlines of your scoring guard type of guys so these guys have gotten pretty big contracts I don't think he has quite the shooting pedigree of some of those guys but he also has a more rugged finishing game more quickness uh, well maybe not more quickness but more explosiveness at, at the basket so it'll be interesting to take a look at him uh you know a lot of people are saying he shouldn't have gone in the second round and, and john when he wrote his piece about how g league ignite is kind of hasn't been that great uh, hardy is kind of exhibit 1a of someone whose stock really dropped with them what else we got to talk about with these guys I did all the research on this before some people would argue it came a little bit more to the forefront after the Dallas Mavericks Sunday loss to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Luka they didn't play. They are now 0-4 without Luka in the lineup. They're 0-4 after being 10-10 and last year, 2-1 and in the playoffs when Luka Doncic was unavailable. And what I wanted to look at is last season, the Mavericks outscored opponents by 4.3 points per 100 possessions when Luka Doncic was off the floor, about 3,000 possessions. And they did so with a 112.1 offensive rating, which is pretty good. And that has dropped before today's game to from a plus 4.3 when Luka's off the floor to a negative 5.6 in a little bit over a thousand possessions. That 5.6 is actually going to get worse after this one because I don't know if there was any garbage time classification. I don't think so, but they lost by 11 to the Thunder in OKC. And my first thought, you know, seeing that is, well, also I mentioned the, so the offensive rating, non-Luka offensive rating has gone from a 112 roughly to a 105. And I wondered, I'm like, oh, you know, how much has Dinwiddie been in? Because A, there have been games that Doncic just missed. And so Dinwiddie has to take that role and he's going to have to sit at some point. And because every once in a while they run a rotation where they're relying on 
Kemba or Campazzo back when he was on the team or Hardy now. And the Dinwiddie on, Luka off have a pretty similar 106 offensive rating. So those groups haven't been great either. Though that said, they've been even worse. I'll get into this a little bit later when it's been neither of those two gentlemen on the floor. And in terms of what's going wrong, it's the offensively, the answer is kind of a lot of things. They're... (laughs) Yeah, they're well, the not only, not being able to dribble or shoot is, is a little n- bit of not a problem. being able to dribble or shoot, not drawing any fouls is a big problem. They're not getting any offensive rebounds in those. And that, a lot of that is personnel based. You know, they just don't really have offensive rebounds in those minutes. So they're not grabbing them. Really, what the what the Mavs are doing in the non Luka minutes, they're taking almost half of their shots from three and they're only making 34 percent of them. So if you're not getting any offensive rebounds, you're not getting any fouls and you're making 34 percent of your threes, then it puts a lot on the two point that you take and it puts a lot on you know you're just not going to hit quite at that rate including 61 percent around the basket that's bad for shots at the in the restricted area and 30 percent on corner threes you expect some regression to the mean there but a lot of those lineups aren't exactly great offensively it's one of the huge problems with the loss of Jalen Brunson it's the lack of advantage creators but it's also the lack of advantage converters because they're then and, and they're missing some of their good players and they're also missing some of their defensive identity and we, we talked many times about how that how that fi- figures out but I, me- I mentioned this before a little bit under 200 possessions non-garbage time where both Luca and Dinwiddie were not on the floor outscored by 10 points per 100 possessions 101 offensive rating so two of the lead guards in those circumstances Kemba and Kampazza were gone Hardy only barely getting a chance now I'm interested yeah, that, to see. And that's obviously a lot to ask for a rookie to oh, of carry course. any lineup. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And he hasn't, and there aren't many, he has, isn't a mu- much of a part of the sample anyway. So that's a problem. And then I wanted to look briefly. I, I got back into, oh, you'll get this in some of the ones where I did research, into NBA Wowie because partially because the NBA's on off tool isn't working right now. Um, and so looking at how players perform with and without certain teammates on the floor. And so for Dinwiddie, when he plays with Luca, 62% true shooting on about 18 usage. And then when he plays without Luca, that 62% drops to 57% true shooting on about 27 usage. But also he assists on 47% of the Mavericks made basket. So basically he's a much larger part of the role, makes more, or it, but makes less of his threes, still respectable, 36%. And one thing that I think just shows the difference in Dinwiddie's role in those two spots, when Dinwiddie plays with Doncic, 80% of Dinwiddie's threes are assisted. And when he plays without him, 31% are assisted. Yeah, I guess uh, Luka Doncic is pretty good and they should have maybe tried to get more of a solution. Well, at, and, uh, and we go. talked about it with Jokic before. That also could be part of the reason why the like the on-off metrics are really impressed with Luka this year because they've been a lot worse when he's been off the floor. You know, and the bench for Denver has been so bad. We've talked about that in previous iterations The number five team currently in record in the Western Conference, despite losing their last two games, but of course they've overall played well. The beam team, the Sacramento Kings, the current fifth seed with a record of 20 and 18, six and seven since the last 15 and 60. They're also above water in net rating. Plus 0.6 is good for 13th in the league. Sixth in offense, 26th in defense. And both Raptor and Elo still skeptical on the Kings. You know, Raptor uses more of the player evaluations. Elo's more how you've been playing recently. Both project them to finish 11th in the West with 40, 41 wins. And thus, you know, uh, 39% chance of making the playoffs on Raptor, 54 on Elo. 
And a piece of bookkeeping note for the Kings. They, because we had cut down day, they guaranteed Casey Okpala and Matthew Delvadova. They cut Chima Muneke, which I thought he's had some good moments for them. Maybe they'll bring him back in a different capacity. We don't know exactly what's going on. The Kings are well clear of the tax, so it's probably not that. Maybe they wanted to open up a roster spot. But you wanted to focus on the wild game they played on Saturday night against the Los Angeles Lakers. It was quite wild. 136-134 in regulation. Kings games uh, are starting to take on uh, this feel again. They actually were defending better early on in the season. They had some bad shooting luck. Now they're just not defending. Mike Braun said after the game that we are not a good defensive team. And the rhythm of this game was fascinating. The Lakers were 9 of 13 from three in the first half. And this is a Lakers team that, of course, is missing Anthony Davis. Austin Reeves is now out for at least two weeks with a hamstring issue. So they're starting Beverly, Schroeder, LeBron, Juan Toscano-Anderson, Thomas Bryant. Westbrook is coming in off the bench. They're really, you know, Westbrook made two of two threes in the first. So the Lakers, still not a great three-point shooting team. Dennis Schroeder had another great game, though, 27 points after 30 without LeBron when they won against Miami. So the Lakers were 9-13 on threes in the first half. They were 0-8 on threes in the second half. I mean, that eight is even maybe more insane than the fact that they didn't make one. But the Kings really were flummoxed on the interior and gave up a ton of points in the second half as well. And the Lakers were just going right to the rim. LeBron was unbelievable, 37 points, 14-28 from the field, seven assists. Schroeder was getting right to the basket. Thomas Bryant, 29 points, 12 of 14 from the field. And DeMontis Sabonis got in some foul trouble early in the third and that was a disaster because he couldn't do anything against LeBron he couldn't do anything against Thomas Bryant uh Sabonis the numbers were odd in terms of the the tracking data his the shooting allowed at the rim it was actually in the 50s which is a rarity for him no it turns out that was really just a a fluke because uh he is now all the way back up to 62 percent shooting allowed at the rim Sabonis has faced 316 shots at the rim which is 26 more than number two brooke lopez part of that is because sabonis plays more minutes than just about every big as well but uh they are not doing a good job of stopping penetration and over the past 15 games sabonis has faced 19 more shots at the rim than anyone else and he's allowing 71.6 percent shooting so if he was better as a rim protector for a short distance i think it was probably short distance well that's a uh beavis and butthead 2010 quote that my wife and i often use so forget that for a short time no he didn't magically become a good rim protector and they are in terms of both the volume and the shooting percentage a lot he's been uh, among the worst in the league and this was a case where I, I, I don't put it all on him because a he was in foul trouble and despite all that he was plus four and had a really nice offensive game in his 36 minutes and and he's a, such a big part of what they're doing on offense of course with all the handoffs and stuff but the kings just never adjusted to help off the guys enough like they really should have been helping way more off the elbows they tried getting Sabonis out on the floor more in pick and roll defense 
Then they tried to have him back. He was trying to go vertical, but he didn't want to foul. Guys were just scoring on him all over the place. But I mean, the biggest thing to me is like LeBron, who I thought was really good in pick and roll in this game and getting downhill and was attacking relentlessly. They just needed to bring more help from the wings. But I guess because of that 9 to 13 three point shooting in the first, they just couldn't get it through their heads that, like, no, this is still a bad three point shooting team and we need to make the likes of Russ and and Juan Toscano Anderson and and Patrick Beverly and Patrick Beverly. Beverly has been shooting a little oh. bit better lately. Max Christie actually played 24 minutes in this game. Kendrick Nate, I, is playing. I, yeah. I have a Patrick, a Patrick Beverly stat. Do you want to try to guess his usage rate this season? <sighs> Is he below the Tucker Rosa line of 10%? Just above. I, oh, ah, it's going to go for like 9.3%, but yeah. 10.4. But <laughs> Patrick Beverly career, 14.4. Last year with the Wolves, 16.1 was the highest he'd had yeah. in years. Yeah, remember also, he was like attacking John Morant off the dribble in the playoffs with some success, actually. Yeah, and but up to, as you said, 34% three-point shooting, which is roughly what he had last year. You know, percentage points better last year. But still not, you know, the can't make a shot, which Pat Bev was at the beginning of the season. The other thing that the Lakers did schematically that worked pretty well was calling up Kevin Herter into a screen. The Kings did not want to switch that. That enabled LeBron to turn the corner and get downhill again, going at their inadequate rim protection. You know, they, and the Kings also don't really have a guy who can guard LeBron and get over the screen either. Like Harrison Barnes was okay against LeBron at this point in an ISO, although he always used to get chewed up by him back in those Warriors Cavs days. But Barnes as a number one defensive stock or making himself small to get over screens, not going to be his forte. They tried Keegan Murray on him a little bit. I thought Murray actually was okay. This is one of his better games with 16 points, four or five from three, played 29 minutes. But uh, Rashawn Holmes has been back in the rotation for the Kings as well, but not playing a ton of minutes. He's kind of been in the, and there aren't that many minutes to be had behind Sabonis anyway, but Holmes played just about every minute that Sabonis didn't play. They went with Trey Lyles for the last minute of the game once Sabonis fouled out uh, and the Kings were upset about a couple of calls late. We'll, We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, Davion Mitchell actually, like the Kings shot it really well. I think they were 12 of 24 from three in the first half. And then they only made two in the second half themselves. Uh, Davion Mitchell made three, though, which it was one of his better games. Let's see. What else? Did I, I, I guess I'll just talk about the game. Just generally, I don't need to focus as much on, on the Kings. Uh, well, I want to they, mention that yeah. De'Aaron Fox got to the line 14 times. Um, oh, yeah. yeah Fox was amazing in, in the fourth quarter. You know, I mean, he's, he actually scored the last eight points of the game for the Kings. The, the part of the problem was that they only scored eight points in the last five minutes in a game like this. They it seemed like they were still going to be in control because they had more firepower than the Lakers, but they just couldn't put it away. Uh, Russell Westbrook was actually really good. 23 points, 15 assists, plus 15. And he had really nice chemistry with Thomas Bryant for the Lakers. And Thomas Bryant, that 12-14, it wasn't all just like layups around the rim. He's a voracious offensive rebounder. His touch is good, but he also had like little short little mid-range flips and even like a couple of pick and pop twos and just everything like he's a really good offensive center it's good to see him getting back to the level that he was at in washington before the acl terry's not a good defensive center obviously but this is a lakers team that like you need they're not going to stop anybody right now without ad so you might as well get one of your best offensive players he's probably their second best offensive player right now with with ad out of the game um yeah fox it was a lot of mid-rangers for him but they're going in he's been shooting extremely well 
from mid-range. He hit what I thought was a really difficult jumper to actually give them the lead. Or I'm sorry, no, that was actually to tie it. The Let me just get this in front of me again with my notes. They went with, the Lakers went with Russell Westbrook, Schroeder, Max Christie, LeBron, and Thomas Bryant to close the game out. And LeBron gets downhill, goes through Sabonis, gets an and one, fouls him out. Uh, They go up one. And I thought the Kings, I thought Lakers, the next possession, I, I only watched the very, very end of this game. Um, was that the one that was deflected in by Mass? I'm trying to remember. I just remember not being super impressed with the way the Kings ran their offense when, on that on the 48-second possession. Yeah, you know, I think part of that was they kind of got trapped on the left side of the floor, threw a really nice skip pass to the opposite side, and LeBron made an unbelievable closeout all the way to the opposite corner. They forced a miss, but Trey Lyles had an incredible offensive rebound. And then they pressure up. Trey Lyles, this is Kings up one still with the ball. Oh, and the, ki- and the Kings had to use their, they used their challenge on that, if memory serves, right? Because they originally called it off of Lyles. No, they no, 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 no. The Kings, different play? The Kings used a, a much dumber challenge. They did not challenge on this because they actually got the ball. So Lyles makes oh, okay. an incredible play on in the offensive rebound. He's in for Sabonis, who just fouled out on the LeBron and one. And so Lakers are actually up one at this point. It was 24.1 left after the LeBron and one gave him the lead. Lakers pressure up. They bring in JTA and Patrick Beverly on the baseline out of bounds. Lyles throws a pass way looping over the top to Fox, but great defense by the Lakers forces it in the backcourt. It goes off of Fox. Lakers get to inbound and they get it in to Westbrook. I thought it was interesting. I think they actually pass it in to Thomas Bryant first. And he's like all scared, gets off the ball, gives it to Westbrook. I'm like, Thomas Bryant, I'd probably trust you to make these free throws more than, than Russell Westbrook. Westbrook makes one out of two. Well, no, we have to talk about the, 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 the messed up, play, the messed up officiating. And on that one. Oh yeah, that is a good point. So they get it to Russ. He, like someone is like kind of trying to take a foul, but they don't reach in. I think it was Davion Mitchell. Russ goes by him. Oh no, that wasn't Mitchell. That was uh, Akpala out on the perimeter. Russ goes by him, goes to the basket, should have had an and one. Davion Mitchell basically like taps his butt to take the foul as he's already picked the ball up at the free throw line. Russ goes in to for the bucket, should have been an and one. They instead call the foul out on the floor. And so that could have put him up three and it Russ would have had a shot to put him up four. three. It could have put him up four. Yeah, would have put because him up three, every- could have put him up four. Russ then misses the first, makes the second. So they're only up two. Kings elect to go full court, not use a timeout. And De'Aaron Fox makes a really difficult shot over Dennis Schroeder, like from the foul line, which was very impressive. Basically just ISO'd him, almost got back to goal and then uh, stepped back. And I, I, when he took it, I was like, oh, there's no way this is going. This is a great contest, but he scored anyway. Layers take a timeout and they try to get into LeBron. Great denial by the Kings. Gets forced all the way in the backcourt to Schroeder, but De'Aaron Fox doesn't direct the ball. Schroeder able to reject the screen, goes hard right, which is the way Dennis Schroeder's going to go every time, and Fox commits the foul. It was one of those ones where you're like, huh, yeah, I don't know about this. They'd already kind of gotten a little bit of a weak call in the Sabonis challenge at the room on LeBron for the and one. Fox is kind of running alongside him, maybe has the forearm on him a little bit. Schroeder goes up for the shot. They call the foul makes both free throws kings challenged this though which was totally dumb there was three seconds left in the game they got a little extra time put on with the challenge but there was just such a small chance 
that they were going to get it overturned. Because there was when, contact. Yeah, there was contact. I mean, like, yeah, Fox is kind of running, trying to run in a straight line. Like, he's not really crossing his path at all. Like, it was it was a very borderline call. I'm surprised it was made. But you're also, the chances of getting overturned are very low. And so that was their last time out. They wasted their chance to advance the ball. So now, and then at this point, Schroeder, once he makes the first one to go up one, probably should have missed the second one intentionally, assuming he could was reliable enough to actually hit the rim and not commit a violation. Because at that point, it's very unlikely the other team's going to get inside the arc to where the difference of a two versus a three would matter. It's probably, they're taking the three probably regardless. So even if you make the second one, now you let them take the ball out of bounds, throw the ball in, cover some of that ground without any time going off. But he makes a, that free throw, but and the Kings don't have a timeout obviously and they don't really get much of a play they in you gotta either inbound it to a guy who's already on the move going away from the rim or throw it significantly into the front court or you're just never going to get a shot and fox had to pull up from like way over on the left side of the floor just over half court had had no chance so tough loss for the the kings nobody got to light the beam today but uh nice win for the lakers the lakers what are their fundamentals here danny they are now 19 and 21 a robust eight and six since the last 15 and 60 that includes five straight wins and six wow. of their last seven the all Lakers, without ad and without yeah. some of the other injuries too they've been without reeves lonnie walker's been out basically this whole time yeah walker's gonna miss at least two weeks with left knee tendonitis as well the lakers are still 23rd in net rating uh negative 1.3 17th in offense 23rd in defense right behind the kings in both 538 models both per predict the Lakers to finish with 40 wins, give them Raptor 37% chance to make the playoffs, ELO 48% chance. And this is going to be a telling stretch. They, I mean, the Lakers deserve immense credit. They've beaten the teams in front of them this next week at Denver on Monday, host the Mavericks on Thursday, host the Sixers on Sunday. Yeah, really interesting. I, I, I mean, I don't give them much chance uh, in Denver. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wick donald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wick donald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last Who's up next here? Uh, uh, next, so next yeah. would be the Clippers, but we've already discussed them. So yeah. instead, we'll go to we'll go to the Phoenix. Actually, yeah, let's go to the Phoenix Suns. They're they're, they're tied right now, so that that works. Uh, they are not tied. The Suns no, they're not tied. Lost. They lost. I had an updated. They are, they are so let's let's, let's, let's do talk the about them anyway, though, because it's your turn. Sure, that works. Uh, you want to give Phoenix the stats? <laughs> Uh, so now 20 and 21, uh, 4 and 11 since we last checked in on them. And then the rest of these stats uh, will be uh, prior to tonight's 
loss. They actually fought gamely tonight against Cleveland, but ended up losing by 14 in the end. And uh, Dwayne Washington went crazy with 25 points, five of eight from three, but no Chris Paul in this game. What what did he miss this, this game for? I forget. I didn't check that. But I will right now. Right hip soreness considered day to day. He played 12 minutes against the Heat and then didn't come back after halftime. Yeah. So, uh, and as we noted, campaign also out with the recurrence of this foot issue, Devin Booker out with the recurrence of the groin. So it's Landry Sham and they're just they're also out Cameron Johnson as well they started Sharich in this game they're missing Jake Ryan and they are just a, a complete shell at this point and it's just basically just Bridges and Aiton and some guys right now for for this team but uh overall they are 10th on offense 115.3 13th on defense they project for the fifth seed Raptor 44 wins Elo likes it for the fifth seed at 42 wins we should do a Watfo on this of just like how many wins say like the fourth or fifth seed in the west is gonna have because one of the like this is one of the things that these projection systems don't necessarily get because they're all too conservative they don't and regardless of whether they even account for the fact that you know a lot of teams are tanking or just suck down the end of the year that they just don't account for the variability so surely some of these teams are going to start to separate a little bit particularly when they're going to be more bad teams. absolutely um and so but that puts the suns in the five seed and then raptor gives the suns a 77 percent chance of the playoffs elo 62 percent on the bookkeeping front jock landale who i originally thought when the suns acquired him from the hawks was more of a kind of like a weird like a throw-in had that light partial guarantee nope fully guaranteed full-on backup center for them playing well overall and what i wanted to look at for phoenix is i, I this came up when i was looking into them a couple days ago was just, but the, the stats are before sunday's game was that their defense we brought up that was that it's 13th so far this year they were third last year and i was like well okay is that starters is a bench and the answer is primarily it's when the starters are on the floor so you could because the sun's defense since sun starting five has changed around so much you kind of have to use mikhail bridges or deandre ayton as the anchor because they're the only two guys that have actually been around most of the season the last year 108.1 defensive rating when mikhail bridges was on the floor that's now a 114.7 so that's yeah and if you look at the the more sophisticated on off numbers like epm for example he does not rate particularly rate but no around average last time i looked yeah i think he might even be a little bit below it right now um the so looked into what the differences are and the biggest change is actually opponent free throw attempt rate for the starters last year versus starters this year. They were above average in 2020 in 21-22. Now they're 19th percentile and the Suns are actually fouling way way more when Bridges and Aiton are not on the floor. That 6th percentile it's one of the things those lineups don't do well. They've done a lot of other things well. I'll talk about that in a bit. And the most obvious place when there's a big shift in a team's performance on one part of the floor is you look for variance and obviously one part of this is personnel you know they have no jay crowder at all this year chris paul's missed time everything else and yes of course that that's acknowledged but also the suns were luckier than average last year in opponent threes and with the starters on the floor they've been unluckier than average not extreme on either of those but going from going from one free, one part of it to the other that makes a pretty big difference um and they also were a little bit lucky on opponent long twos last year and so that so that part of it you know they're they're doing they're they're less lucky than before but even that wouldn't be enough to explain most of this but the one that was most interesting to me is that 
Opponents are making 70% of their shots in the restricted area when Aiton and Bridges are on the floor, and roughly that when Aiton's on the floor in his full complement units, whether whether Bridges is there or not. Rim field goal percentage has never really been a huge strength in Aiton's minutes. It was usually around 66, best years around 64, but 70% is a threshold where it's like, oh, this is a problem. And not all of that is on him. There are a lot of different factors in it, especially playing smaller and worse defensively at power forward. But Aiton's, the rim protection numbers on him this year, like per set stats, are not particularly strong. And he's 447 out of 484 in Seth's um, wins are like room protection wins. And part of that is because he's a center who only can test 24% of shots when he's out there. That's an insane number to me that, and I don't really understand why that would be like, I don't think of their ski. Like he's not like bam out of bio where he's just switching out on the floor all the time. And when he can test that's it hasn't been that, that good. You know, it's been worse than it normally is but and that the the biggest thing of just like contesting only 24 percent of shots around there that is like comically where does that rate among centers actually maybe i'll, I'll look that up while you talk actually it's pretty low um and it's <laughs> and especially when especially because like the position classifications there are centers below him but most of them are not traditional centers in the sense they're either switchy or they're power forwards who also play some center like i mean towns is playing as the four a lot this year for example um, and then the other thing that I want to talk about briefly with Phoenix's defense is that this wasn't necessarily the case last year, but brought back something that struck me two years ago when they made the NBA Finals. They're weirdly good non-starter defense. 110 defensive rating when Aiton is off the floor. That's 85th percentile of all cleaning the glass lineup splits. And those units, not the best defensive personnel either. It's changed around a lot due to their availability. Forcing a lot of turnovers, better protecting the rim, whether it's Jacques Leodale or Bismack Biabo. Those are the two primary non-eight and fives that they've had in the lineup. So I'm not freaked out about it yet, other than their defensive personnel just being meaningfully worse than it was last year. But getting healthier whenever that happens will be there. But the idea that the Suns, you know, like they finished third last year, they're going to be well worse than third this year. Yeah, I always thought it was the defense that was more of the paper tiger with this team than the offense like i think their offense was legitimately very hard to stop i other than mikhail bridges being really good i never quite understood how it was that this was one of the best defenses in basketball and you know, certainly ayton had a better season last year and chris paul was better at all that but and they just make a lot of shots and so the the opponent was coming back against a set defense but yeah i just personnel wise and i think you know this show once they went up against the the Mavs and even kind of struggled to stop the Pels last year as well. So after Phoenix, are we done on them? Yes. The Warriors have fallen to 20 and 20. They had won five straight. Then they lost back-to-back games to the Pistons and Magic at home. Magic playing pretty well. It was interesting seeing them in person. We can kind of fold that into our coverage uh, at another time. But really, the Magic controlled this game throughout. Uh, The big problem for Golden State, uh, if you want to give their fundamentals real quickly first, we can kind of get into what we saw last night. Yeah, let's do the fundamentals first. So 20 and 20 overall, 6 and 7 since the last 1560, though there was kind of a winning streak and losing streak in that plus 0.5 net rating is 14th in the league 14th in offense 14th in defense 14 is the magic number apparently both 538 models project the warriors to finish with the six seed 43 wins on raptor 42 on elo and both high 60s percent chance of making the playoffs and they fell just so we have the score out there 115 101 at the hands of the Orlando Magic. And I'm assuming the thing you're going to talk about that went poorly for them was the turnovers? Well, the first thing that went poorly for them was 
the starting lineup introductions because Clay sure. Thompson was announced as a starter and then he wasn't there for tip off and the <laughs> the announcer was like uh the PA guy is like uh yeah so uh, uh Dante DiVincenzo is actually starting and w- Andrew Wiggins came back from the groin slash illness Andre Guadalla made his debut as well it got in with about seven minutes to go in the first uh, but it didn't play that many minutes uh, we'll talk about how they looked in, in a second but I thought that Clay not being there really messed up Steve Kerr's rotations and to not have Steph and Clay I thought the Magic did a nice job of defending the Warriors the Warriors just shot a crazy amount of threes 15 of their first 17 shots were threes Anthony Lamb had 22 in the first half tied his career uh, high in one half yeah I, I'd forgotten that he had actually played some for the Rockets back in that crazy 21 season that the Rockets had but they were just jacking up threes and once the magic kind of figured out that hey we can just stay home on these shooters and nobody in the Warriors is actually going to be able to drive to the basket and score we're just going to be able to shut off the water from three there and take more difficult shots and then yeah they just the magic got a ton of turnovers uh as the Warriors would try to drive throw the pass that they thought would be open to the weak side but the defense had never reacted and they just got it stolen right and there were it's always it can be hard in those circumstances to separate force and unforced errors because the Magic were in the right positions and they weren't helping in the same way that they normally would. But there were some where like, it looked like Jordan Poole like threw it, you know, like a quarterback throwing it straight to the defensive back. And and then they ran the other way, got some good transition opportunities. A couple of Wiggins turnovers were in the rusty varietal and and Wiggins still getting getting all the way back for a 12 from the field in just 19 minutes of action. And Draymond had a couple of weird turnovers too. The Warriors in total, 16 turnovers, 12 of them live ball, and that helped fuel some of what the Magic did well. I thought Bancaro and Marco Fultz in particular did a nice job in transition for them. And Jordan Poole, he had a couple of nice moments, got to the line 10 times in the game. But he also, he I think there are times, especially in with playing without Stephen Curry, where he understands a lot is on his shoulders and interprets that as, I need to take shots early, and sometimes those shots are just pretty bad. I mean, Golden State really struggled in the second half in particular. They put up 62 points in the first half, but it was because they had this uh, insane, I'm sorry, 59 points in the first half, but it's because they had this insane three-point shooting. They ended up shooting 18 of 58 from downtown, and that's without Stephen Clay. <laughs> that they're and they're kind of in the same vein i think as those mav stats you talked about earlier where they're just taking a ton of threes because there's nothing else to do <laughs> because they're just not getting much penetration iguodala played his 12 minutes had a couple of turnovers you could tell he hadn't played with a lot of these guys and hadn't played at all since the nba final and really barely played in the playoffs last year either and remember he just like missed a bunch of time so he hasn't really played any kind of significant minutes since basically about this time last year and you know we'll see whether he's able to help them or not it is difficult because he's really like a total non-shooter I think at this point unless he's just absolutely wide open and he's not going to try to do anything off the dribble either so I think it's possible that he could help them but I, I talked to pretty extensively about some of these issues with Slater of just Kaminga's out right now too like they're they're definitely hurting in terms of their in terms of who's available and you know losing Clay was a big problem he's played a ton of minutes lately so but 
what is it going to be Kaminga? I mean, would it be Lamb, Looney, and Draymond? Is that going to work in every matchup, uh, putting those guys together? So I think they are still kind of a guy short. And, you know, I think Poole, we'll see how much he plays in the playoffs. Like, Clay starting to play better is usually good. DiVincenzo has been pretty good. It's like there. Wiggins is back now. I, I think as long as Steph can play the way he played early in the year once he comes back which should be this week it, it seems like they're getting healthy it seems like they should play better it seems like dream out on the second units that kind of solved these problems so intellectually it seems like they should go on a run but they just have we've been saying that about them for a month and a half now we have and they have this road trip starting at the end of the week first that alamodo game with san antonio where the nba is trying to set the attendance record we'll see if they actually do then bulls wizards celtics Cavs to to finish it out and that if curry comes back we'll get a a clear sense also there'll be more time for Andrew wiggins to kind of get back on track after he the as you noted because he looked a little bit off at the start of the game this was the longest absence that wiggins has had in his entire nba career a couple other smaller notes here we talked about it kevin pelton's piece on part of why the warriors were so good at home and so bad on the road he noted that a big reason for that was 29 percent opponent three-point shooting that was written right after they won that hawks game which was so crazy and then the detroit made every single three in that game last week shot 44 percent. magic were 41 percent three in this game and lo and behold they lost both those games patrick baldwin jr has been getting out there a little bit more and his shot looks pretty legitimate it was three of six from three in this one doesn't have a lot of bounce though i mean he really is going to have to be a four defensively but doesn't well, give you any kind of rim protect like, he's definitely pretty soft defensively at this point you, in time you brought up the bounce i also uh, it was one of the rare times i've actually gotten to see him in person and he just kind of moves in a weird way as well like i i would love to have somebody who's like a kinesiologist or whatever you want to call that like the the way that from from his hips to the top to his shoulders is just a little bit stiff and awkward and i think some of that can can improve with time but he didn't he's not the most fluid let's put it that way yeah but he's also 6'10 and he can shoot the ball and we'll see whether they can make a player out of him in the other areas who's next here i'm sad it can't be the orlando magic i have i have plenty of thoughts on them from this game but let's let's move on to the minnesota timberwolves they are now 20 Mm. and 21 yeah one fourth straight yeah they're 16 and 21 and uh turn it around yep now there's they're seven and eight since the last 15 and 60 even net rating which puts them at 16 that seems about right 20th in offense 10th in defense and another team right in this middle of the group in terms of the 538 projections 41 wins raptor 40 elo both are the nine seed in the western conference projection systems right now 47% 47% on Raptor, 44% on Elo. And let's talk about their game against the Houston Rockets. I watched it. Uh, I guess that means we have to discuss it. This is a truly awful basketball game. The Rockets led 58-38 with just under six minutes to go in the second quarter the wolves came in they stunk it up rockets were running it down their throat wolves couldn't make anything the final score of this game was minnesota timberwolves 104 houston 96 so houston scored 38 points in the last 30 minutes of the game and five of those were like 
garbage time in the last minute of the game. It was, and I'll credit Rudy Gobert, who got a lot better. Chris Finch turned the game. They went an immediate 11-0 run by taking D'Angelo Russell out of the game. He closed the half by putting in Torian Prince, who's back now from that shoulder issue. They had Kyle Anderson basically just getting them into their offense, but they went through Anthony Edwards a lot. And that just locked down the Houston Rockets. And I thought Jaden McDaniels was fantastic defensively in this game. He held Jalen Green to the absolute worst game I've ever seen Jalen Green play. Four of 14, but he started one of 11 and just hit some garbage time buckets late. I thought Green, during the competitive portion of the game, got like one good shot uh, and he just couldn't get by McDaniels. Then he, I mean, he also just didn't seem to have his normal explosiveness off the dribble. And I noted the same as Hondra did that he has a lot of finishes where he just takes off without a plan and he's not going to get fouled, gets his shot blocked. Uh, the, the one play that I thought was kind of emblematic of a lot of this game, I was much higher on Jalen Green in the draft than I had been Anthony Edwards the previous year. Anthony Edwards is bringing the ball up in the second half, just throws a lazy pass just over half court to the wing. Jalen Green's all over it, intercepts it. Jalen Green tries to come back, Euro step around Anthony Edwards, and Anthony Edwards just sends his shit into the eighth row. And I was like, yeah, these guys are kind of not the same. Like Anthony Edwards is just a way better player and a way better prospect than Jalen Green. Like Jalen Green could never make that defensive play. Yes, it was a dumb play by Edwards, but he was able to come back. And you just, you didn't even feel like, you know, just a, a guard going downhill at a same size guard, especially someone with Jalen Green's explosiveness. It doesn't matter who it is. You think they have the advantage with the guy backpedaling and you just never felt like Jalen Green was going to be able to get a good shot on that play. So yeah, Jane McDaniels was great. Uh, Prince was pretty good too. Kyle Anderson was just pickpocketing guys left and right. He had four steals and a block was just coming off of the non-shooters of which there are quite a few on the Houston Rockets and just like stealing it from guys Jabari Smith tried to go around Kyle Anderson one time in isolation and just left the ball behind because Anderson got him with that 7-4 poke away wingspan um yeah Houston they just like Jay Sean Tate is back now but they are just like so they kind of have now just not been playing a backup point guard you know Dyson Nix kind of failed in that role at Ty Ty Washington didn't play in this one I'm not sure whether there was an injury there or something but I think they just felt like all right Tate can handle the ball a little bit more they went with Jalen Green at backup point guard and that was part of their group when they were taking off to get that 20 point lead but then it all fell off Kevin Porter was really the only guy who had it going at all for Houston um Rudy Gobert had a fantastic defensive second half the Rockets couldn't get anything going against him. Shangun was awesome in the first half and he made eight of his first nine shots had 18 points he did not score in the second half and Rudy Gobert just completely shut him down Shingun actually had been going right at Gobert in the first half for some hooks and and drives and Gobert like shut that off Gobert also had a a number of huge dunks ended up with 18 points uh, and 11 rebounds only one block but had a a ton of intimidations so uh, I mean I can't say I was impressed by the Wolves 
in this game but any road win that they're going to get is helpful for them still without carl anthony towns well and, at least he, yeah and no and, backup point guard either and i watched parts of this game and and one thing that stood out to me was just having competent play you know because they have enough players in the rotation you know off the bench noel rivers reed prince you could roll with that and kyle anderson has done a really nice job you know they have anderson and big daniels as the starting forwards at the moment and so they are missing carl anthony towns but having prince back makes it makes a really big difference for them even with McLaughlin still out for an indeterminate period of time the Rockets it, it's so funny I brought this up god I think it was a month maybe six weeks ago on a 15 and 60 that almost all of Houston's best defenders come off the bench but the problem with that is a your your best defense that's not the time necessarily that your best defenders are maximizing their use depending on how the other team's players are are in the rotation but also most Really good defenders who aren't good enough to start are very limited on the offensive end. And there were some challenging stretches for the Houston Rockets offensively. For sure. And I mean, some of these lineups, it's just like, what is your, what is the theory here? They've got KPJ at point guard, Tari Eason at the two, Jay Sean Tate at the three, Kenny Martin at the four, and Usman Garuba at the five at the start of the fourth quarter. It's just like, let me ask you this, Danny. Who, who is the Rockets' best player? Probably Shangun, game to game. Yeah. I guess that's probably right. Like he's actually quietly taken some steps forward as a as an offensive player, but he also had five turnovers in this game. I thought his rim protection was actually okay when they weren't just pathetically failing to get back in transition defense. I talked last week about how I had, had talked to a, a coach in the G League who goes up against the Rio Grande Valley Vipers and this idea of everybody attacking the basket to offensive rebound, and the Rockets are, are one of the best offensive rebounding teams, but that does help their transition defense much either their communication is bad they always seem to get stuck in some kind of a bad matchup and they don't have like a lot of guys who can clean up messes on this team either so uh tari eason it's interesting like his thrill actually looks pretty good to me it's just all the other stuff that he tries he interestingly enough has the league's lowest field goal percentage on dunks minimum of 20 made dunks he's 20 of 29 on dunks this season and that's we've talked about how his two-point field goal percentage is just weirdly low for a guy of his skill set but he's also out there in some units where he's asked to do more uh, than perhaps he should so I, i mean and garrison matthews they put him out there just to get some shooting he got up five shots in eight minutes but he was negative 13 i don't think that was really his fault but it's just and eric gordon i thought actually looked decent in this game like he's the guy who's got to guard anthony edwards he had 11 points and four assists had a couple of nice drives but he also you know it's kind of doesn't look all that inspired uh, to be out there um anything else to wolves related that we got to talk about here no i think that's about it um just so we have the rocket stats out there they are 10 and 30 on the season, 3 and 12 since the last 15 and 60. 28th in net rating, negative 7.6 per 100 possessions. 29th on offense, 28th on defense. Kind of basically, you could be 29th on offense, 28th on defense, and be not worse than 28th in net rating, but we'll get there. Um, 20 wins per Raptor, 21 per ELO. Both of those are last in the East, and they are not going to make the playoffs. And then Houston on cutdown day guaranteed the contract to Garrison Matthews, which is not a huge surprise, but I wanted to mention it all the same. Yeah, and this is now the sixth straight loss for Houston. Uh, I mean, they're losing these games, but like, and, uh, this is, I think, is the closest of their losses during this period. And they got outscored 27 to 15 in the fourth quarter of this rather ugly loss. A couple other notes for the Wolves. You know, Gobert was great. They ended up playing him 38 minutes. 
Prince, uh, I, I think, is, you know, again, uh, we talked about this when he came back and, and he was good in this game, but and had some key late clock drives to keep possessions alive. And it was kind of a reminder you don't think of him as like some really high skilled player, but he made, made a couple of nice like spin moves, fadeaways to, to get buckets late in the clock when they didn't have anything else going. But just to have one other guy with some size who you at least have to respect at the arc he was two of four from three game best plus 19 so like there's actually i mean if you look at this group that was out there like they should be good defensively with mcdaniels anderson and gobert and edwards is capable uh and now it is worth noting i mentioned the unit that got them back in the game they went to that with a eight point lead with about five minutes to go and then instantly got a couple of turnovers by anthony or actually it was one iso three with like 20 20 on the shot clock up eight with five minutes to go by Edwards and then he tried to drive and got stripped and they gave up a, another fast break so it gets cut down to three and they immediately bring in Russell again and he helped to study them and he, he wasn't bad it was very frustrating to me though that Houston you can't get by anyone and you're not going after D'Angelo Russell in isolation at all um, and also with respect to Houston I, I talked to an assistant coach recently and he basically said when you're scared for Houston like they don't really run very many plays and that's that's obvious when just watching these guys it's just every single time someone catches the ball it's never a quick decision it's okay can I attack here can I do something oh wait no there's I guess this guy's in front of me maybe I'll take a dribble it's not there all right now I'll make the pass like there's just no flow to their offense from action to action I, I mean I think it would be nice if they could play through Shingun a little bit more at the elbows than they do and try to get that kind of Sabonis game going uh, but they also don't have great shooters which is what you really need you can kind of just go under on all those handoffs if you don't have guys who can shoot it that's that's the underrated thing about running through running your offense through a center like that is if he hands off you need guys who can shoot so that they have to go over the handoff and then you can turn the corner and get middle and set everything else up if you just go under that then it's all kind of useless Next up in this group of teams that have basically the same record, Portland. You want to give their stats? Yeah, they had a rough loss today. Only three bench points in the game. They lost uh, at Toronto. They are 19 and 20. Struggling a little bit, five and eight since uh, we last checked in on them. They actually are in the positive on net rating, 0.1, 15th in the NBA, 12th on offense, 22nd on defense. We talked about their splits with Dame Lillard on versus off, and, and we're going to get into that a little bit more here in just a second they are 22nd on defense which is better than some of their worst years have been uh, of late they are projecting for the 10th seed by a volts projection systems 40 and 38 respectively they have 42 percent chance to play us for after 32 percent elo so yeah let's let's talk a little bit more here danny about anthony simons and his role when lillard plays and doesn't because the the top line numbers with lillard on off and obviously that simons is uh, a part of that uh, as well uh, are very interesting and not great for the Blazers other than it's good to see them play so well when Lillard is on the floor I guess I watched a lot I'm thankful I watched the game against Indiana instead of the one against Toronto just because it was a supremely entertaining basketball game close late Pacers ended up winning 108-99 and I noticed at the very beginning of the game that it seemed like Anthony Simons was barely touching the ball. And that makes sense. You have Damian Lillard on the floor. You're not really going to do much with Lillard and Simons together. And they also have other secondary creators like Jeremy Grant, Josh Harkadusa with the ball and, and Nurkic actually. Nurkic actually was bobbing or taking threes. He made a couple of them in that game, which was which was fun. 
And so I wanted to look at, okay, this is what the eye test is telling me in this admittedly small sample. How does how does that bear up? And the answer was not quite what I expected. So the not surprising part is that, yes, the Portland Trailblazers offense is, is meaningfully better when Damian Lillard is on the floor than when Damian Lillard is off the floor. Though I would say he's still in the range of respectable 112.2 offensive rating when Simons is on and Lillard is off. But the part that I found so fascinating is Anthony Simons, both kind of his shot distribution and his overall efficiency this season is virtually identical. One tenth of one percent in true shooting off when he plays with and without Lillard. So 57.4% true shooting with Lillard off, 57.3% with Lillard on. And of course, as you'd expect, Simon's taking more shots, larger role with the offense when he's the solo or at least lead creator than when he's off. And so I looked into it, I got a little bit more detailed, and like jumpers are the same proportion of Simon's shot distribution. He has about the same efficiency on jumpers overall. And it's so basically it's like Simons is doing a similar thing, like he has similar efficiency, but he just has the ball in his hands a lot more. And I found it really, really interesting. And normally, like you could bring up somebody like Jordan Poole or Tyler Hero, like when they play with or without the other dominant offensive force, there's more shifting that happens with their efficiency with their game overall. And Simons is a very good pick and roll ball handler. And I think that's part of why his game is so resilient this year. 80. Yeah, he's always been one of these guys who just make shots off the dribble out of pick and roll. That was always, even when he wasn't a good player, that was what was so intriguing about him. And yeah, so that that sort of play is resilient. You just hope that for whatever reason, he hasn't been able to dry change that into really being an effective running the offense in the way that Lillard has, even though you think that that's something that defenses really need to react to. Right. Like you see somebody who 1.045 points per possession as a pick and roll by hand, ball handler. That's 90th percentile. That's really good. When you include passes drops down to 78th percentile, but still very strong relative to his peers. And Simon's still a credible spot up player doing well in isolation. A lot of those things is actually doing better statistically in ISOs this year than last year. And it's just, yeah, how do you translate that to what he would be on a different team? This group I brought up Hero and Poole just before in terms of extrapolating them into other situations. But I still do like Simon's best as a pick and roll operator. He's still mediocre defensively, but all these all those guys basically are. And so that makes it, but he's had some big moments late. Like it isn't always just Dame time. Like he could do, make some big moments. And Simon's, I don't know what to make of this. I found it interesting, but I didn't come away with it with a, a true takeaway. It was just the idea that he can be a relatively efficient player in both of these circumstances. He could do things well, but saying, and you know, we had the Funhouse mirror last year where Simon's only played about 22% of his possessions with Lillard and put up, you know, pretty good like splits on synergy and everything else. And the team's offense wasn't fantastic, but we knew their personnel wasn't strong. So overall, it's just like, I, I don't, again, I don't have a huge takeaway from this. I am intrigued by it and I'm going to watch the Blazers with this in mind in the future, but we, you don't always have to come away with the diagnosis. Who's next there? We already talked about the Lakers. So next up is the Utah Jazz. The Jazz have fallen to 20 and 23 on the season, five and nine since the last 15 and 60. That said, they're still 12th in net rating, 12th in net rating at 0.8 plus 0.8. Um, third in offense, 27th in defense. That's quite the split. And 538 models both project them 
despite currently being 12th in the West to finish 7th in the West, 41 or 40 wins, and gives them about a 50% chance of making the postseason. Yeah, they're now 11-16 and 16 in clutch games. I believe that is tied for the most played clutch games in the NBA with Miami. Yes, it is. So 27 of their games have been clutch, and they've won 1.0 fewer games than expected. Remember, of course, that this those numbers from Seth consider the context of the clutch games i.e are you ahead or behind as you enter the last five minutes of the game larry markinen though has not cooled off in the slightest dropped a career high 49 against houston and i continue to just be so fascinated by the way in which he's getting his points and houston is not a disciplined defensive team so they're going to struggle to take things away but larry markinen is basically getting just about everything other than transition as either being screened for or being used and screened for he's either screened for off the ball or he's the screener in pick and roll and so he had nine spot ups against houston 10 pick and roll roll man although that some of those were pick and pop which are kind of the same as spot ups uh five plays in transition then five off screen so he had a 49 point game and he had zero possessions in isolation and zero post ups so almost and i don't think he had any pick and roll ball handler possessions either so that's pretty darn rare you're gonna see that and you know i probably when we talked about marketing all nba and how he's you know his total usage is not that high and i'm probably not giving enough credit to him as an offensive player for just the gravity that he has at this point in time as a seven footer start shooting well over 40 percent on threes getting a bunch of these up and then his versatility being able to attack off the dribble he now has 72 dunks on the season his career high was 63 he's already surpassed that by quite a bit that was 2020 i think uh no i'm sorry that was his first year but he at 63 was in 2000 minutes and he's at like 1200 so this year so he's 12th in the nba in dunks also fascinating that 95 percent of those dunks are assisted and so many of his shots are assisted but you know he's almost kind of the way that he works it is something that you really do have to deal with and the jazz offense as you noted, is still third in the NBA. And so I think calling him a play finisher is probably, you know, Clay Thompson is also a play finisher. Sure. Right. But he has a, a lot of value because you just have to respect all of the actions that he's running off the ball. And yeah, he's not a very good passer, but part of the reason for that is that he's just getting the ball in a position where, and Mike Conley is so important, I think, to his success too, but he's getting the ball in a position that not everyone could be scoring from, but he is scoring from there. And he obviously stresses out the defense because you can't put a total lack of size on him. And when he gets a screen from a smaller guy or a bigger guy, it just, the defense has to put two on the ball or he's going to score and and react. So I think now they are that 27th in defense and he's, they're playing some very offensive lineups so that he's benefited from that and that they kind of go with more of a five out spacing situation uh but it's not like he can't score when vanderbilt or walker kessler are are on the floor either ochi abaji now 
now in the rotation for the Jazz. The last four games uh, had a really nice game against Chicago, though they did uh, end up losing that one. He just got a ton of corner threes, but he's able to get them off quickly and make them. Also had two drives on closeouts for layups. He's got pretty good athleticism attacking the basket. He had one cut where he kind of spun into a tough fadeaway uh, against Houston. He had a nice Devin Booker cut out of the corner, just a quick taking advantage of Tari Eason. And so I, I think he's going to continue to get looks. He does have somewhat of a similar skill set to Malik Beasley, although he's not that level of volume shooter. But it, he is kind of interesting. I think he's better defensively than Beasley, but he's kind of like a little undersized to guard some of the best guys. Like watching him against DeMar DeRozan in that Bulls game, he just didn't have the size to deal with DeRozan. And, you know, when DeRozan got to the mid-range, it was just a layup shooting over him. Like the contest like wasn't even close. And DeMar DeRozan does that to a lot of shooting guards. But you also would be hoping, again, that Abaji can play up a little bit. But he's not going to be able to do that against anybody who's got any scoring ability at the three. But that, that's all right. Like, I think he could switch on to ones okay. Like, he's got some athleticism. Like, he'd be a totally adequate defensive shooting guard and can make shots. And so it's been encouraging that he's gotten in the lineup. I liked what I saw from him in Summer League as well. He's a guy that I think it's it's too bad, again, that the Cavs couldn't have at least held on to him just as the Wolves couldn't have at least held on to Walker Kessler. Like, that was great negotiation by Danny Ainge to get guys that those teams drafted that they liked that then once the trade became available they just had to include them so I mean getting Abaji I think I think he's got a good shot to be a rotation player and Walker Kessler in those trades in addition to basically the full drafts going forward is very solid it's a, a huge help for them as, as you move forward and even if Abaji never becomes a starter can still be a capable rotation player under team control and I'm not going to put that past him obviously and he's had, had an, a nice little stretch for them and the jazz will see where things go from here and they the the two pads in some ways with this five and nine five and nine play three and seven in their last 10 it puts them more in the mix to kind of do both of them which is compelling and i don't know what danny Ainge is going to end up doing but we can move to a team that's finally a little bit more out of this morass even though they did get two straight they have had two straight wins and that's the Oklahoma City Thunder yeah I, I mean John and I of course we ruled them out of the playoffs we thought there'd be an organizational commitment to tanking they're 16 and 22 even when we talked about them last week it seemed like all right you know they're well within range of probably most likely to be the six or seven seed in the lottery and they win two more hey you win two straight in the west you're like you're right in the mix there <laughs> they're they're two games in the loss column out of like being the sixth seed right now uh and they're they're playing well they're only negative 1.2 net rating 22nd in the nba 21st on offense 15th on defense they had fallen off for a spell defensively now they're right back into it again and you know i think them being better on offense part of that shay part of it is that they actually play centers who can space the floor right now but you'd think then that you're giving up so much defensively with those sorts of players but that has been the case they still project for the 13 seed but 33 wins per raptor 37 preload now this is another thing that's fucking incredible tanny and, and this again will change but the 13th seed in the west is supposed to have 37 wins a lot of people talking right now about how shitty the west is overall but that would clearly be a record and you know let's keep in mind we're talking about this last year too in the east 
of like the 12th seed was going to have high 30s and wins and that didn't end up happening so but elo says they got a 23 percent chance at the playoffs offensively what is it that they are doing given the fact that you know they really have one premium player and some guys that's had them at 21st on offense i thought of this as a pretty jaw-dropping stat um i was combing through everything that seth is tracking and the oklahoma city thunder take 65.1 high-value shots per 100 possessions. That is the highest in the league, and it's the highest in the league by a lot. Very. What is a high-value shot? A high-value shot, as defined by Seth, shots inside five feet, uncontested threes, and free throws. That's it. So 65 shots out of every 100 are one of those three things. And yeah, well, or I guess I guess sixty-five possessions out of sixty-five out possessions of out of every hundred possessions. Free throw would be two sure. shots, but yeah, sure, sure. And that's incredibly striking. And so I'm like, well, well, shit. I mean, the only one other team is above sixty-one, and that's the Pelicans. And then everybody else is well in that league average. The median's around fifty-five, so about ten more, ten more of this per hundred possessions. And my first thought on it ended up explaining a, a big part of this, which is. The Thunder are running. They have the lowest time to shot in the entire league, 10.9 seconds. Third shortest after defensive rebound. Third shortest after a turnover. Second shortest after a made shot. And by the way, this is an easy calibrator of the teams that I've enjoyed watching the most this year. There are three teams in the NBA that are top three in both time to shoot after a defensive rebound and a made shot. So after each of those separately, the Thunder, the Pacers, and the Kings, all of whom are delightful, delightful teams to watch so far this year. So running, that allows you to get looks in transition that allows you to get fouled in certain circumstances especially when you have limited half court personnel so that's one one way that you could do this and i had a theory i i can't test it out that they might get more uncontested threes than other opponents because a lot of their shooters are so bad that you don't need to worry about it as much that's a possibility then the other thing is free throws and not a huge surprise seems like that's a whole lot of shea gilders alexander the thunder are 57th percentile in free throw attempt rate when shea's on the floor fourth percentile when he is off the floor and Jonas Alexander himself before tonight's win over the Mavericks taking 10.3 free throw attempts per 36 minutes that is the fourth highest rate of anyone in the league the only other guys over 10 Giannis at 14.2 which is astonishing Embiid, Luca, and the only other players over nine, Zion and Ja. And by the way, Paolo Bancaro, 10th in the league in free throw attempt rate per 36 minutes. Keep an eye on that. He he was good in that Warriors game. Mm -hmm. And I actually, uh, I talked to a coach who had this comment about preparing for the Thunder, that what makes Shea so difficult to guard is that he's reactive with his handle. It's not, he's not like, pre-selecting the buttons on the controller he'll make a move see how you react and then he has a counter in it and if you react to that then there's another counter and oh by the way as you mentioned with the fouling he knows how to get fouled he's got that slender body you can go through your arms and so you all you also can't touch the guy you can't steer him and before you realize it he's just five feet away from the basket even in in a one-on-one situation and then he's just got that floater game that he can score on he's got the mid-ranger as well if you back off of him and so it's just when this coach is trying to prepare his players to go up against Shane, the scouting report, it's like, okay, watch out for these 15 things right? <laughs> that he does. It's not, it, there's nothing you can look at where it's like, okay, this is what he likes to do. He likes to go this way. He likes to go that way. This is his favorite move. He doesn't really even have a favorite move. It's just that he has all the moves and he can react to what you're doing 
as a defender so he's really hard to prepare for and that's he just gets you out of position so much that's how he gets fouled so much so I, I thought that was a, an interesting way of talking about Shea that that he's someone who just has so many things that he can go to and such total command of the ball one other kind of team-wide stat I brought up the idea of that they're getting more uncontested threes potentially I don't even uh, in terms of proportion actually in, so in, in terms of proportion yeah they are getting more uncontested threes than than everybody in the league actually that number is even more of an outlier 66.8 percent of their threes are uncontested only one other team is over 61 and everybody else is like 50s or six like 50s basically um the thunder they're shooting just 30 percent on contested threes this year that's pretty damn bad um that's i i think actually now it's like it they've they've did a little bit better over the last couple days so they're not worse than they're not worse in the league but they're around that and then the last little thing i wanted to talk about briefly was watching one of their games and was kept an eye on trade man i was like oh how's he doing overall playing a similar amount of minutes per game low 20s this year as trade man did his rookie year usage rate is in the low 20s again similar assist percentage age 21 season what is so bizarre i think there was a year this happened with malik monk is that last year trey man made 36 percent of his threes and 42 percent of his twos that's a pretty good three number and a terrible two number this year up to 48 percent on twos but down to 30 percent on threes so you put those two together you got got a reasonably efficient young player going but the, the split means he's been at about 50 percent especially in true shooting especially because trey man doesn't get to the line and only 13 percent of his shots are in the restricted area and so that combination something i i was always worried about with taylor hero and numerous other players in the past man takes about half of his shots as twos about half his shots as threes but when only a small portion of those are in the restricted area that means that 32 percent of all trey man's attempts are twos away from the basket not making a great proportion of those and so i my instinct on man is that he has a lot of hopefully he can grow he has some you know he has some really nice highlights and i wonder what he's going to be defensively but i haven't seen quite enough from him yet to think that he's going to be an on-ball dynamo but still plenty of room to improve as a complimentary player yeah well he doesn't do anything else other than attack with the ball because defensively he's not good and he's not going to be good but this type of player can be tough to evaluate he clearly has a skill level so is he just going to start making shots like he can get separation in the mid-range like those aren't ideal shots for a lot of guys but if you're really skilled then maybe you make those shots he's improved his finishing this year some and so which is one of the things that really happens for young guys like he's able to get to the rim some like he so it's just it looks inefficient it doesn't look good like it's possible you could stay this way you might get a little bit better but you know i think at a minimum as like a reasonable scoring guard he's gonna have a future it's just he's not quite athletic enough and doesn't have quite enough size to me like he was just gonna have to be so good as a shooter that i you know it's hard for me to see any kind of like you know a starter upside with him because of the defensive limitations because he's not really a passer so you just have to be so good as a scorer when that's all you do all right last team here danny we're gonna make it all the way through how about that Woo. the 13 and 27 san antonio spurs actually five and nine since we last checked in on them they've been respectable and winning about half their games but they have the net rating of a team that's really bad 30th in the nba negative 8.7 so they're playing really more like kind of a low 20s win team 
26th on offense and absolutely terrible. 30th on defense, 120. I think that's on try. This is cleaning the glass. I'll have to see where they're at in NBA.com, but they're going to certainly threaten the worst defensive rating of all time at this pace. They still project for the 14th seed, though, per Raptor, 26 wins. Elo has them for 27, comfortably above that low 20s over under that we both took the over on. They won't be making the playoffs, though. And uh, some news on them uh, as a result of that blockbuster trade. I hope you guys all like that David Stern sounder that I dropped in there, by the way. Re- really enjoyed it. I took it. You didn't know this, actually, because you don't re-listen to the episodes because only an insane person like me would do that. But I used the David Stern trade announcement sounder from a trade that is near and dear to your heart from the book that you wrote the chris weber Anthony oh Hardaway wow trade. yeah uh after we t- talked about that blockbuster so they actually just then waved jang and now they brought him back on a 10 day uh, just so that they could acquire and then wave noah vonley they still want to have jang around so hey he cleared waivers bring him back pay him a little more money there <laughs> doesn't hurt them they so well below the salary floor and who knows yeah maybe, maybe this will happen to him again <laughs> That would be hilarious. Uh, I mean, he's on the 10-day for now, uh, I assume. You can only be on two 10-days, so maybe they'll... I'm sure they have other trades uh, to make at some point. Stanley Johnson, how many of you guys even knew that he played for the Spurs? Uh, He is now uh, guaranteed. Their defense is 30th, though. What the hell is going on there? Like, John and I talked about this, too, and we ruled it out of the playoffs. Like, they should be better than this. Why are they so terrible? They should be better than this. It's a mix of execution and some really bad luck. Per Seth stats, they're give, the Spurs are giving up the second highest amount of high value shots in the league, but also opponents are shooting so much better than the median on teammate cre- on teammate created shots. So those are just you know like the the assisted or you can think of it some more like that. And for example, plus so opponents the the shot making proportion for them is plus three point two, which is good if you're the offense, bad if you're the defense. Nobody else is past plus one point six. So it's just like some of this is anomaly but also they're giving up a lot of good shots, everything else. And longtime listeners will know one of my proclivities with the 15 and 60 is when a player is going to be out for a while, I like to do a little bit of a an analysis on them because I know their stats aren't changing. And so that also allows me to sometimes do it a little earlier in the week. And unfortunately, that is Devin Vassell, player that I'm a fan of. Vassell played so far, but for now for a while, in 29 games this year, 24 starts, averaging 19 points, four rebounds, a little bit under four assists in 31 minutes per game. 56% true shooting on 25 usage, both of which are significant career highs. And that's really positive. You know, a player in his third year being having the most efficient year of his career and that step up from roughly 20 usage to 25 is an extremely significant one, even if the Spurs offense we knew wasn't going to be great. It has continued to not be great. And you have to kind of extrapolate that in a couple different ways. And so the thing that I was originally most interested in is that Dev Vassell, I brought up these numbers a little bit with somebody earlier, 40% on 8.1 threes per 36 and 48% on twos. You love to see that over 50, 48's not fantastic. But last year, there were 48 players who had a usage rate over 20 because I wanted to separate out like non-shooting specialists and attempted at least seven and a half threes per 36. Of those 48, only four of them converted over 40% of those threes and only 13 were even over 38%. So what he has done in terms of 
volume and efficiency, albeit on a smaller sample than a full season, is really impressive. And the four players who were who had that, you know, had that triple of over 40, the usage and the frequency, Desmond Bain, Kyrie Irving, Anthony Simons, Bryn Forbes. He's been really hot shooting the ball from mid-range. We've seen some Spurs guys do this over the years, DeJounte Murray. Derek White had a, an interesting season where he was a really good as a pick-and-roll scorer, uh, as uh, Vassell was, 75th percentile in pick-and-roll scoring. So much of that is fueled by just getting into mid-rangers off the dribble. If you look at his splits in terms of where he's shooting out of the pick and roll, right around 80% or so of his shots out of pick and roll end in jumpers off the dribble. But he, as you noted, he's making them. 50% of his shots are self-created. and 50% of his twos. Uh, oh, no, that's 50 overall? Yeah, I think it's 50 overall. Okay. Yeah, 50% of his shots overall are, are self-created. So that's a, a pretty good number. You noted that he's still taking a, a fair number of threes as well and making a bunch of those. Uh, so we'll see whether this guy is like a great shooter. That's really, you know, John talked about him as establishing himself as a solid two guard. He's kind of in between a two and a three defensively. He's got good hands. Doesn't really have quite the size or toughness to guard the best threes in a one-on-one situation. But, and obviously this has been a little bit of a down defensive year for him as he's moved into doing more on the offensive end. He's not really a good finisher when he gets to the rim either contested finishing is only 45 percent so far this year so that that's not too great like he's this idea of him as a pick and roll score like yeah i think he can get to his spot in the mid-range you maybe you, on a team that doesn't have many other options he's been helpful for them but also i don't think he's gonna be a guy who hasn't shown a ton as a passer either it's not gonna be a guy who's really gonna create efficient offense for the team necessarily but i think with, with some of his defensive ability and the shooting from three on pretty decent volume obviously a very successful season for him despite the injury for sure and Vassell even though he has had the ball in his hands a lot more on this first team still n- about 92 percent of his threes are assisted so it's kind of that double we see it's every once in a while where players not generating those kind of shots but I'm not gonna obsess over that I think that the idea for Vassell like what I've seen from him so far this year is the idea that he could be a ball handler and a pinch a complimentary guy rather than being the like the every down running back like that's a lot to ask of any player and Vassell still plenty of room to grow and the fact that he's going into extension negotiations after the season is going to be really complicated because also the timing of Vassell's free agency, what is he going to prioritize and everything else. We're not going to get all the way into that so far. And then the other way that Vassell can differentiate himself from other kind of offense first perimeter players is by being a better defender. And I would say the reviews there are are mixed. EPM is like... EPM is really low on Devin Vassell's defense. So they, it's really yeah. that model. Well, is really I, like, they may be rightfully pretty low on the Spurs. Sure, <laughs> sure. And and Raptors about the same. And so and, and Vassell, like you, you look at the physical tools. He's still pretty damn skinny and. I don't know. I don't have his wingspan stat handy, but he's listed at 6'5". That seems about right to me in terms of height. Like, you know, guys can thick it up a little bit or whatever. Yeah, his wingspan. I think his wingspan's like 6'11 or something. Yeah. So, again, kind of like with Trey Murphy earlier, the idea of basically can he hold his own? And we haven't really seen that yet. And so if he can't, then the utility gets a little bit different. But I would say preliminarily, I've been positive on Vassell this year. I think that he's shown more depth to his game. And they're asking him to do too much, but sometimes, you know, this can't, I'm not comparing him as players. Please do not think I'm comparing them as players. But Devin Booker, the workload that he took on early, I thought it kind of in a way did him a disservice in the interim, in the immediate, because 
Devin Booker was not good enough to handle that. But getting those reps as an on-ball player helped make him a better player later on. I don't think Devin Vassell is Devin Booker's prospect now moving forward. But I think there could be some usefulness in terms of his development from this time. Well, that will do it. We can catch you up on that Clippers-Hawks game. Clippers erased the 17-point deficit, went up 11 with six minutes left in the game, and promptly lost the game, a game-losing 21-6 run, game-winning for the Hawks. Nate McMillan, 750th win as a coach, 18th all-time. Mark Spears had that stat. That's pretty incredible. I mean, Nate McMillan, he's been around since like the early 2000s. He's been a coach for almost 20 years in this league uh, with four different franchises. And he's never really had like particularly bad teams either. Uh, I think as the end of his Portland tenure, they were bad. The end of the Seattle tenure, they were bad. But he's never had more than like a couple of really bad years. Uh, I think there's he's had some limitations at the top end. He's never really had a great team as coached either. But I think the only conference finals he made was that Hawks one. Uh, yeah, but anyway, that'll do it. Thanks so much for joining us here. Glad we were able to get this whole thing out to you. Great to catch up on all these teams in the West, do some research. And we'll be back tomorrow. Also a reminder, we have a game tomorrow, Danny, which is Bucks at Knicks. It is mm. a it is a 7:30 Eastern, 4:30 Pacific start, and we'll we'll also have a fun a fun new wrinkle. Yeah, please join us uh, for that on NBA League Pass, and we'll also have the pod tomorrow. We'll talk to you all soon. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.